going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And specifically for now, we're going to look at verses 36 through 39. 1 Kings 18, verses 36 through 39. And the Word of God re- reads as follows. And then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is my prayer for me personally. This is my prayer for the church. We need to come to a place that we know that the Lord is God in the church. And that God would turn the hearts of His people back to Him. My heart is that God would hear us, turn the hearts of His people back to Him, and that the fire of the Holy Ghost would fall from heaven, and all would know that the Lord, Yahweh, is indeed God. Now, in order to understand this text, we need to take a little history stroll just to give you a little bit of background. Let me share with you the background to Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Elijah, his main name means the Lord is God. Wouldn't you want to name your kid that? The Lord is God. I have a nephew named Elijah. He shortens it. He calls himself Eli. But the Lord is God. What a great name. And he would fulfill his name throughout the ministry in Israel. He was a a Tishbite. That just means he was from the village of Tishbe. And uh, prophets really were, the role of the prophet, prophets were really guardians to the kings. They were really designed to call out from God messages to the kings. And so Israel, and I'll talk to this in a minute, Israel at this point in time, had had several kings. And Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Now, to understand that, we have to take a step back to what happened. There was a civil war in the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the year 931 B.C., they split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which were the 10 tribes, and then the southern kingdom, which was Judah, and Benjamin. So all tribes that were in Judah and Benjamin were in the northern kingdom. Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom. That's where he is. So he's, he's ministering out there. And each of them, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, had their own kings. Matter of fact, they had 20 of them. Okay? In the northern kingdom, they were all wicked. In the southern kingdom, there were two kings that were righteous. One of them that comes to mind immediately is the king Hezekiah. And 
the northern kingdom, like the southern kingdom, okay, goes through a litany of kings that go from bad to worse. And at this point in time that the scripture is referencing, King Ahab is king in Israel. And it's the bottom of the barrel. He is about as depraved as depraved could be. Now, also during this time, Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, sought to integrate into the worship of Israel pagan worship, primarily to what is called as Baal, right? The worship of Baal. Baal was the god supposedly that gave rain and, and good crops and all the other things necessary, and Asheroth. Asheroth was another one, and they would erect these big poles. Think of them as totem poles of worship. Now, you know anything about the law that was given to Israel, you know that idol worship was forbidden. So as Israel went from bad to worse, as Israel went from, you know, into the reign of Ahab, Ahab's wife Jezebel was not an Israelite neither, and she encouraged the worship of these false gods. By and large, she encouraged it. And so what happened? Compromise. Compromise in Israel. We're going to compromise some of our religion. You know, we still worship Yahweh. We just, you know, we have these other pagan deities as well. By the way, Baal was worshipped, by the way, with statues and little statuettes that they would keep in the house and they would keep in the temple. This is horrific in the eyes of God. And as a matter of fact, the mainstay of Elijah's ministry is he is calling Israel back. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Come back to the one true God. And to do so, to show the impotency of Baal, Elijah prays that it would not rain in Israel. And James 5.17 tells us very clearly, he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. So you can imagine, there's a drought situation. Now notice one thing. It was thought that Baal controlled the weather. They, it was thought that he spoke in the thunder. But now they haven't seen rain for three and a half years. And it gets back to Ahab that this was Elijah the prophet who did this. So Elijah the prophet is kind of like a wanted man at this point in time. And so as Israel begins to move, as they begin to move away from the true word of God into this integrated semi-Jewish uh, semi kind of uh, religion with all of this paganism integrated in, God is going to judge his people. And God had indeed judged this people. And you know what? You see some of this occurring today in the church. You see integration of extracurricular stuff into the worship of God. Many of Israel's priests were practicing some of the pagan religion aspects of it. And Israel was falling deeper and deeper and deeper. As I look around the Christian landscape today, I see very much similar things. 
The church needs to come back to its original roots. The church needs to come back to a pure worship. The church needs to come back to a pure faith in Jesus Christ and get rid of all the other different things. There is great apostasy falling away, entering into the church. And many, many, many people are embracing it. I tell people all the time, a church like ours is, is, is an anomaly. You know, because we still believe in an inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. Instead of trying to argue away all the different things we stand, if God's Word says it, therefore it's true, we believe it, we embrace it, we teach it, we advocate it, and we stand upon that. But more and more today, you see churches falling away, rationalizing the Word of God, trying to integrate a lot of the culture into the church. And I believe that professed Christians, people who profess Christ as Savior, need to take a very, very bold stand in our culture today. We need to be like Elijah, and we're going to see the boldness of Elijah in just a moment. We need the revival fire of the Lord God Almighty. That's what we need. We need. We pray diligently that God would send revival. Not the shenanigans you see on TV and all the other stuff, but the genuine awakening of the heart that God's people's hearts would turn to Him. So in light of this, Elijah issues a challenge to King Ahab. He says, here's the challenge. I want all you guys, get your prophets of Baal. By the way, there were 450 prophets of Baal. And I think for good measure, Elijah says, and throw in the prophets of Asherah as well, which there were 400. And I want all you guys to meet me up on Mount Carmel. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to build our respective altars, and we're going to prepare the sacrifice And then what we're going to do is we're going to pray to our God and the God who calls down fire from heaven, He is indeed God in Israel. Now you know that is a bold, bold move. But he was a prophet of God. And consequently, Ahab agrees and has all of Israel assemble on Mount Carmel And here it is, 850 to 1. 850 to 1. And by the way, I don't think that uh, Elijah had a cheering section there too, kind of encouraging him on. I think he literally stood alone on that mountain. And we're going to see as we look in the text today, I I want to call four, four elements, four principles out to you. Because everything that we do is is about getting to that place where we go deeper in Christ, where we come into the fullness of Christ. And let it be your desire, by the way. Let me let me digress a moment. Let it be your desire that you want to go deeper in Christ, that your heart pants for Christ, that you yearn for Christ, that maybe you look at other people and you say, why can't, you know, that person has such a relationship with Christ that when they speak, the anointing comes off that person and, and you could 
You, you just know that that person is in Christ. I want to show you, show you four principles that lead to revival. Four principles that must take place for revival to take place. And they are as follows. Number one, restore the proper worship. Number two, restore the right heart of worship. Number three, offer righteous requests in worship. And number four, a righteous response to worship. All those things will, re- will, will yield a return to God and revival. So let's take a look at the text today. And let's look first at 1 Kings 18, verses 30 through 32. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. The first thing we notice here is that Elijah begins by restoring proper worship. Look what he says here in verse 31. And Elijah, uh, verse 30, he says, So shall all the people be. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. So critical is to restore proper worship of God. The proper worship of God. No move of God can ever be expected if we have a wrong form of worship. And I want to clear something. Worship does not mean music. Can we get that clear? You know, you talk to a million people today, say, oh, you know, I went to the church. What a worship service, you know. Oh, you know, and and they are referring strictly to music. Worship is everything we do to worship the Lord God Almighty. We worship Him in song. We worship Him in the reading of the Word of God. We worship Him in prayer. We worship Him in the meditation of the Word of God. Worship is a state of the heart. And in order for God to move in a person's life, we need to repair if that has been torn down, if that altar has been torn down. We need to repair and restore right worship to God. And to do that, we need to tear down altars that do not make much of God, that debase God. Tear down the altar of convenience that that seems to pervade all things in the church. Let me share something. The Christian life is a life of inconvenience. It does not work. The Holy Spirit doesn't work on our calendar, on our time. There will be many times that the Spirit of God would cause us to be inconvenienced for the Lord. Things that we don't like to do. Things that we've never done before. Many, many, many times the Spirit of God will move us in a direction that may seem to contradict with our likes, our passions, our desires, but He calls us and we must respond. Tear down the altar of comfort. And instead, tarry in prayer. Tarry, you know, 
pursue, be burdened in prayer. Come before the Lord. Tear down the altar of comfort. Get up half an hour earlier. Get up an hour earlier. Get up in the wee hours and be alone with God. So many people say, oh, I don't, I don't feel the presence of God with me, but they spend no time with God. You know, oh, I pray in my car on my commute. Great, what else are you doing? Are you having alone time with God? Is, is your Bible open? Are you before the Lord? Are you weeping? Is God making you uncomfortable? That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. We need to tear down those altars that are hindering proper worship before God. Tear down the altar of entertainment. Oh my goodness. Tear down the altar of entertainment that pump godless thoughts and and filthy thoughts into our mind. Tear it down. Don't build your life around what's on TV or what's on Netflix tonight. But tear it down. Take it down. Are there things that you're viewing? Are there things that you're watching? A hindrance to your spiritual growth. Many people will say, oh, that doesn't bother me. I could watch that. That doesn't move me. Let me tell you, it does move you. And the time that you spend in there, you could be spending in meditation, contemplation, fellowship with God Almighty. Paul Washer made a statement. I was listening to him recently, and Paul Washer made a statement. He goes, we all, you know, we spend these great times in prayer, great times in prayer, and then we dismiss, and we go and we sit in front of the TV, and the very thing that we did, we un- the very time we spent with the Lord, the quality with the Lord, we just blew it away. Tear down the altar of, of entertainment, of television, movies, and that preoccupy our minds. Tear down the altar of immorality and filth. And let me share something with you. You know, Barbara and I were at the beach yesterday, and we are down in Cocoa Beach. Sometimes I feel like when I go to the beach, I have to put on blinders, like I want to put on things that are blind. You don't even have to look for it. It finds you. And if we're doing anything to supplement that, that that lust and that filth gets into our hearts. We need to tear that down. We need to wash it away. Let's stop dancing with the world. One foot in, one foot out. And let's hunger for God and His righteousness. You guys know this. You've heard this from me for a long time. Jesus is, you know, Matthew uh, chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People ask me all the time, how do you know if you're saved? How do I know if I'm saved? The first thing I'll tell them is, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you hunger and thirst for everything else except righteousness? Well, to me, that would be be a little bit of a red flag there. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Desire Christ. Love Christ. Let Christ be preeminent in your life entirely. Let us build altars of holiness. I love it, you know. Without which no man shall see God, says the writer of Hebrews. Built an altar of holiness, dedicated unto the Lord, without which no man shall see God. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Let us build the altar of God built on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. We just celebrated Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday, and we celebrated the finished work of Christ on Calvary, that it is indeed finished. That there's nothing else we need to add. That it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our trust and our security. Let us build our altar of God on the foundation of the mighty Word of God. Let us build the altar of God upon the Word of God. Inspired. God breathed. Theopneustos, right? God breathed. The God breathed Word. Infallible. Inerrant. Word of truth. Our society doesn't want to know too much about truth today, which is leading to a litany of problems that we have out out there because there is no objective truth. The Word of God is truth. Thy Word is truth. Remember the words of Jesus in John 17? Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth, O God. And I would say to the church, and I would say to myself, and I would say to anybody who hears this, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word, O God, is truth. So we need to restore the right, the proper form of worship. What's the second thing? Verse 36. We need to restore a right heart of worship. Look at verse 36. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Worship is not about you. Worship is 100% about God, the triune God. We are to invoke the blessed Trinity, the almighty three in one and the one in three. He, God, is the object of our worship. If anything else is the object of our worship, If we do it to feel good, wrong motivation. God is the object of worship. Only He and He alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. And we worship that triune God, the blessed Father, the glorious Son, the mighty Holy Spirit. Only the one Godhead is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise and strip away everything else. We are to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Our motivations are that God would be glorified and that God would be made much of and that God would be exalted and that God would be praised. So central was this, that Israel had what is called the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6.4, what every Jewish person would say every morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. How do I know if I am saved? Do you love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? Is everything that is about you as a person about God? Is it about Christ? Do you revel in the glory of Christ? Do you revel in the beauty and the majesty of Christ? Yesterday, while we were at the beach, we got a free show. The Air Force Thunderbirds were performing at Patrick Air Force Base, which is just a stone's throw from where we were on the beach. So we watched them as they did their precision flying over the beach. And it was impressive, to say the least. I mean, they were coming maybe 200 feet above us, 300 feet above us. And you hear that roar and you hear that engine and you see the precision flying and, you know, they're flying maybe 20, 30 feet apart in, in precision formation, doing, you know, acrobatic steep dives. And, and I said to Barbara this, I said, you know, man can do so many incredible things. I mean, just look at this. Man can really do some incredible things. Look at the machinery. Look at the execution. Look at this. I said, but that is not even a drop in the bucket compared to what God can do. As I'm looking out over the ocean, as I'm looking out over the blue sky, as I'm looking out and I say He created all just by, by speaking it. He spoke the Word and it was. Do we spend time where we marvel in the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God? Do we spend time where we, we marvel and we, we pause and we think and perhaps even weep over the glory of salvation? That He took a wretch like me. He took a bum like me. He took a degenerate like me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. How can it be, Lord God, that you would give your son to die for me, a reprobate like me? I love the great hymn. How can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? Yes. Do you pause at the wonder of salvation? Do you fall at the feet of Jesus on the cross and say, Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. Or do you only do it once a year on Good Friday? Or on the Resurrection Sunday church? We need to restore right heart of worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. I say to the church, Hear, O church, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt worship Him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. In Exodus 20, 20, the Lord spoke. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slave, slavery, and what? You shall have no other gods before me. Right worship means dismissing all other gods, all other passions, all other things that we have out there. And what was Israel guilty of right here at this point of time? They had multiple gods. They were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping Asherah. They had little statues in their home. They're committing idolatry. They're committing spiritual adultery by being with, with another god. And you go, well, pastor, that's, that's not me. I don't, you know, I, don't, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any of that. 
Yeah, but we have other idols, don't we, that sit upon our heart, don't we? We have other idols that are out there, other passions other than Christ, other things other than God that need to be torn down, stripped away in order to come with the right heart of worship. I shared earlier, if you come to church because it makes you feel good, you're coming with the wrong motive. Come to church to praise God. Come to church to worship God. Fellowship with other Christians that they may make much of God and that exalt in His name among the unbelievers. We don't want to do that too much these days, right? We don't want to exalt the name of unbelievers. But how else will God be worshipped? I was talking to my nephew Andrew the other night at the funeral service. Andrew's new to Christ. And Andrew said to me, he goes, you know, Uncle Mark, he goes, a lot of my friends, they, they, they just don't get it. I go, what don't they get, Andrew? He goes, well, they, they go, man, you've changed. You know, what is going on with you? You don't want to go out with us anymore. You don't want to do this anymore. You don't want to do that anymore. And I said, Andrew, God is glorified every single time they say, man, have you changed? Because it's only God that can produce a change like that in their heart. You know? And that's where we need to be. If we are the redeemed of God, if we are the people of God, if we profess Christ, let us live Christ before all the world. And let them mock. And let them laugh. Because some that mock the most and some that laugh the most, you'll find, will be the ones that come to you in time of need. We must worship, worship the Lord in spirit and truth as Jesus taught. Our cry as a church, when we first started the church, our heart cry for this church was for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ, and for the glory of the gospel. And that still remains my cry deep, deep, deep within my heart that all things would be for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ, and the glory of the gospel. Let us be a people, as it says in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. As the Moravadians said, the Moravadians were very evangelical in the 17 and 1800s. And they would cry out, may the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Do we think that? Do we want the lamb that was slain to receive the reward of his suffering? Let us worship God who has saved us, who will save us, and all who come to him in repentance and faith. And let us be the first church as be like the first church as testified in the Holy Scripture in Acts uh, chapter 2 as they declared Christ and the testimony of their lives reflected their faith. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. And it reads, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. One heart, one purpose, one mind, restored proper worship, a right heart of worship. Let's look at the next verse. And here is a righteous request. Not only 
did he rebuild the temple. Not only did he restore the proper worship, and not only did he pray with a right heart of worship before the Lord, but now he makes a very righteous request in worship. Look at verse 37. Hear the voice of Elijah the prophet. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that Thou, O Lord, art God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. What a righteous request. Nothing in it for Him. Answer me, God. As a matter of fact, if you look at the text where it says, O Lord, He's saying, answer me, Yahweh, the name of God. Answer me. That these people may know that Thou, O Lord, art God. That's the prayer for the church today. That these people would know that Thou art God. That the Lord God Almighty reigns among us. That Thou indeed art God. He asks not for selfish requests. He asks not for material possession. He asks not for peace, pleasure, or prosperity. He asks that God would consume His people again. A righteous request in worship is that we as a people would know the living God, that we may know Him experientially and not intellectually. You know, Scripture has so much to say about this. You may want to write down these verses and refer to them later. But I want you to consider these verses. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us, not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Jeremiah 9.24 Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands me. Jeremiah 29.12-13 Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. Now I could have went on more and more and more, but this is the admonition of Scripture. And by the way, every time you see that word know in there, It doesn't mean intellectually. It means experientially. That you would know, that you would have that personal experience knowing that He indeed is God. I like what A.W. Tozer says. He goes, many people know know about God in the Bible, but very few people know about the God of the Bible, know the God of the Bible. Our request to God must be to be filled with the knowledge of Him. Now this is where it all comes together, right? Do we desire that? Is that our desire? Oh, I pray that it would be desire. If we we earnestly desire revival, we must desire Him. 
He is the object of our faith. We will stand and give an account before Him one day. We must love Him with all of our heart and soul and our mind. Our orientation as human beings, as Christians, must be Christ and Christ alone. I strongly encourage everyone to turn from selfish requests and turn to God and be filled with the knowledge of God, to know God, to be filled with His presence as we tear down idols in our hearts. Fill our hearts with God's requests for that which is eternal and not temporal. Be consumed with eternity and that begins with a desire for God. On our Wednesday evening prayer meetings, although it's on Zoom for now, on our Wednesday evening prayer meetings, those of you who attend, you know this. When we come together as a church to pray, I say this every week, we're not asking for anything. We're not here to pray for Aunt Tilly who stubbed her foot coming out of his shower. We're not asking, oh, that I would get that promotion. We're asking for nothing. Our prayer meeting is about praise and worship of the living God. To tune our hearts to Him. To come together before Him. To worship Him. To be filled with the knowledge of Him. To come into His presence. Because I'm going to tell you something. Everything else that he has given us is blessing. You have a nice home. You sleep in a nice bed. You have a job. You pay the bills. You put food in your stomach. Where do you think that comes from? That's all him. That's all him. We don't need to look and say, how come they have more than I have? Or this one doesn't deserve that. Why didn't I get that? But as believers in Christ, we come to be filled with the knowledge of Christ. Elise Fitzpatrick, in an excellent book I'll recommend to anyone, called Idols of the Heart, makes this statement. The truth about choices we make is plain. We don't consistently choose the Lord because we don't really desire Him. And we don't desire Him because we're not convinced that choosing Him will result in our happiness. And I would add in our satisfaction. That's why the lure of the world is so strong. That's why the, the, the world is always pushing, you need to have this, you need to have that. Go get this, go get that. Hey, get that BMW. It's going to make you smarter, better, more attractive. Like an old bag like me is going to drive a, a BMW and all the women's heads are going to be turning. What are you kidding me or what? But the world is constantly putting scales upon your eyes. Madison Avenue and the strategy of materialism and consumerism that pervades our society is constantly putting scales on our eyes that Christ would be obscured, that the desire for Him would be obscured. And if we could put our faith and trust in other things, then we're better. And we fall prey to this all of the time. Oh, that as a people of God, as a people of God, we would offer up to the Lord righteous requests like the prophet Elijah. Answer me, O Lord, that these people may know that thou 
O Lord, our God, and that thou hast turned their heart back. And that's the prayer here. Answer us, O God, as we cry to you for revival, as we cry to you for a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God, as we cry to you that you would take the apathy and the lethargy and the scales off our eyes, as we cry for you for a genuine move of God, answer so that everyone we come in contact would know that thou, O Lord, art God. And so, consequently, if we don't do that, we tend to live in abject spiritual poverty because we're too consumed with our needs, our wants, our desires and pleasures. Ask yourself a question. Do we need that now in this time of turmoil that we find ourselves in? Will that indeed satisfy? Should the persecution be unleashed in greater scales in this nation? Is a new car, a redone kitchen, bigger house going to satisfy? Not in the least. So we saw he restored a proper worship He restored a right heart of worship. He offered a righteous request. And here's the fourth thing. There was a righteous response. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Oh my goodness. Fire came down from heaven. Fire came down from heaven. Now, you know, we we didn't have time to cover the whole chapter here, but I want to share something with you. When they went up for the contest and the 450 prophets of Baal went forward, Elijah the prophet said, hey, you guys go first. And he kicked back on some rock there. And they began their ritualism and their chants. Oh, Baal, hear us, hear us, Baal, you know. And they started doing that for several hours. The sun was right above them, and they were getting hot, and they were getting sweaty. And uh, I'll tell you, I encourage you to read the chapter because Elijah teases them. He says, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's, he, he actually says this. He says, maybe he's relieving himself like he's, go, he's going to the bathroom. And he's just taking a time away, and he's taunting them, right? He's taunting. Well, this drives them crazy, right? They start getting nuts. They start pulling out their swords, and they start gashing themselves because self-mutilization was a form of piety to their pagan gods. So they thought if they start cutting themselves, right, more and more and more, right, that, that, that Baal would hear. Now, it was thought that Baal spoke through the thunder, Remember, there's a a three-and-a-half-year drought that's going on at the time because Elijah prayed, right? And nothing happens. Then Elijah says, basically, I'll put it in Brooklynese, you guys look really tired. Why don't you take a break over there, right? He says, I'll give it a shot. And we just read the verses. He builds, he rebuilds the altar of God. He prepares the sacrifice. 
he places the sacrifice up on the altar and he does something weird. He tells them, go get water and douse, douse the altar. Now, I think we're all smart enough to know that if we want fire with wood, the last thing we want to put on the, on the wood is water. And he puts about, about four gallons, five gallons. He builds a trench around it so that there's a puddle in there. And he douses it and he douses it with water. And then he says his famous prayer in verse 36 and 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that thou art God and that thou hast turned their heart back. And what happens? Fire falls from heaven. But it doesn't just fall from heaven. Let's read the rest of the text. Fire of the Lord fell. Now notice what it did. It consumed the burnt offering. So there it is. There's the offering up to God. It's completely consumed. And the wood, the wood which was wet, was consumed. And the stones... Well, that's a tough one. How do you consume the stones? And the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the fire came down from heaven, it consumed everything that was there. And I submit to you, when the fire of the Holy Ghost comes down from heaven and consumes you, it will consume all that is in you. If you desire it. When the fire from heaven falls and descends, its purifying fire will cleanse you from those things that have you ensnared and have you entrapped. It will consume your weaknesses. It will consume your fears. It will consume your mind. It will consume your soul. It will consume your passion. It will lick up all that is left there when the Spirit of God brings the revival fire down upon His people. They become consumed with God. And let me ask you, what could be better? What could be better? The problem in the church today is that there's so many things that consume us outside of Christ. That sometimes to be consumed by Christ is a threat. I have many friends who profess Christ. <clears throat> that kind of won't come here because they say, you know, Mark, he's too much with that stuff. And so we go nice and easy. That kind of consumer-friendly, user-friendly Christianity. Give me enough religion, but man, don't rock the boat, you know. Give me enough of that Christianity, but, you know, just, you know, take it easy. Take it easy. Ian Bounds, that great writer on prayer, writes this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, Mighty men in prayer. Leonard Ravenhill, who I absolutely love. By the way, I only read dead guys. I love the dead guys. They're great. Leonard Ravenhill 
wrote a classic book called Why Revival Tarries. He writes this, The world is not looking for a new definition of the gospel, but a new demonstration of gospel power. A.W. Tozer writes, Our worship services should be so holy, so filled with a sense of God's presence that unholy people will be very uncomfortable. But we have done it the other way around. When the fire of the Holy Ghost falls on God's people, it will consume everything we have in our hearts as well. But we must come to the place where we desire Him. And we desire the fullness of God. Where we stand in the awe and the wonder of Christ and His marvelous, wonderful salvation. You know, I think about it. You've probably heard this over the years, right? Science professionals say that the average human being only uses 10% of his brain, right? And they go, like, basically the other 90% is, I don't know, not being used. That's the average. I probably use 5% of my brain and 95% of my brain's out there. But what percentage of worship do we render to God? 10%, 5%, 20%, 100%. Could you imagine all the unused potential you have to go into Christ? When we cry mightily to Him in repentance, when we are sick of this present world and all of its mirages and deceptions and run directly to Christ, when the church must forsake the world and embrace Christ and Christ alone. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus made this statement, no man can serve two masters. He will either love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So what has this all produced? We've seen the four elements. Restore proper worship, a right heart of worship, a righteous request in worship, a righteous response to worship. What has it produced? If we're consistent in this, if we're desiring this, I'll tell you what it produces. It produces a return to God. And that is indeed revival. Look at verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What a response. A response from a people who had integrated pagan practices and were far from God. When the fire fell, they saw that He was indeed God and they fell on their face. Repentance came into the heart of the people. And we know from the rest of the chapter that Elijah goes to pray. And he prays. And he tells his servant, look out. Do you see any clouds? He doesn't see a cloud. He doesn't see a cloud. He doesn't see a cloud. And then the servant says, I see a cloud like the fist of a man. And God sent forth the rain. Church, I beg you with everything in me. Let us pray that God would send forth fire 
and God would send forth the rain of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What's our response today? I want to ask you a few honest questions for you to consider before you leave church. When was the last time that you labored, you really labored in prayer with the Lord? You agonized in prayer with the Lord. When was the last time you wept in prayer with the Lord? When was the last time you prayed for God to move in the church or sought the Lord that you would go deeper in Christ? When was the last time in prayer you just got lost in the wonder, the splendor, the praise, the adoration of Christ and asked nothing for yourself? When was the last time you simply worshipped Christ? Not sung a song or hummed a tune, but just lost yourself in Christ and worship Him. If the answer to these questions is I haven't, then I encourage all of us, I encourage all of us in the church to turn to Christ. Let's repent of our sins. Let's go before the altar of God, restore the problem of worship, the right heart of worship, Righteous request and worship. And then, and only then, there will be a real and genuine response from the Lord. Let's bow our heads on the word of prayer. Mighty Father, as we gather on this day, We pray even at this moment that the Spirit of God would search our hearts. Let it be known this day, Lord God, that I don't view myself better or different or more special or more intimate with you. The very things that we see in the Word are the very things I desire myself. And dear God, we do indeed pray for genuine, spontaneous move of God. We do, Lord God, pray for revival, not like what we see on TV, but genuine, authentic. Like you moved in the Great Awakening, like you removed in the Scottish revivals, like you moved all throughout history, like you moved in the days of Luther, Lord God. that our hearts would come back to you. Turn our hearts away from lethargy and apathy. Turn our hearts away from indifference. Let each and every one of us examine ourselves. And Father, let us even now, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, tear down every altar that we've erected to self to pleasure, to comfort, to ease. That we, Lord God, as a people of God, would above all things desire you. Oh, that we would know Christ and we would be able to say like the Apostle Paul that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed even unto his death. 
we would be able to say like the prophet Jeremiah, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and a mighty man in his might or a rich man in his wretches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he knows and understands me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and righteousness and justice on the earth. For I delight in these things. That we would be able to answer the call Hero Israel, hero church, that the Lord thy God is one God. And thou shalt love him with all of thy heart, all of thy soul, all of thy mind, and all of thy strength. What we need, Father, is a great repentance. What we need is a great forsaking of the things of the world and a great turning to you, O God. So, Father... Will you move this day, Lord? I pray the words of Elijah the prophet, answer me, O God, answer me. That thy people, that you would turn the hearts of thy people to you. And that we would know that the Lord is indeed God. And we pray these things in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.